what are your habits? Because what happens is, you know, we either end up in autopilot focusing on other things. So if you've developed really good habits, whether it's, you know, working out, if you think about just habits in general, you know, you're, you're going to be healthier, you're going to live a healthier life if you eat right. And it's the same thing with money and finances. If you've developed the right habits, then as you said, it's not about optimizing your investment portfolio to the nth degree. Like, can I get an extra 0.001% return? It's like, are you doing the more, you know, just macro level things that you need to do on a regular basis that, you know, that 0.001% is way less important than actually just investing on a regular basis. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax, let's take the edge off, grab a nice glass of bourbon, and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome back to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. This is episode number 10. I'm your host, James Vermillion, founder of Vermillion Private Wealth. We've talked a lot about innovation so far, and we've talked a lot about investing, but we haven't talked a whole lot about personal finance. But today I've got the perfect guest to do it. William Glass is the founder and CEO of Ostrich. Ostrich is a mobile app that helps users build better money habits with a game-like system that reinforces positive financial behaviors. Like me, William's a self-professed money nerd. He's also an entrepreneur, and he brings a simple, down-to-earth approach to financial education. So let's do two of my favorite things, drink and talk about money. William, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thanks, James. I'm excited to be here. So there are a lot of things I think we can and and probably will get into. Um, I talk a lot about innovation. I talk a lot about investing and stocks and, and all of these things. But one thing that I haven't talked as much about is personal finance more broadly and kind of the basics of personal finance and financial literacy. And that's why I'm really excited to talk to you today. But as you know, the show's called Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, and we're not having bourbon, but we are having whiskey. Um, So today, we've got something that I'm excited to taste. Um, It's from a distillery we've actually already, um, I've already drank on the show with another guest, but it's a a different variation. So today, we're we're going back to Willett, to the Willett family estate, and this is a rye whiskey. It's a seven-year-old, and it was bottled sometime, I think, back in 2013, 2012, something like that. It's a little high proof. It's about 117.8 proof. So it, it might have some heat uh, there on the, on the tail end. So get ready for that. But I think it's going to be interesting. Their stuff is, is, uh, is fantastic for one, but also they've got so much variation to their flavor profiles. There's always some kind of surprise lurking there, but are you normally a, a whiskey drinker or? Yeah. Yeah. I, I like whiskey. Um, I I'm not as well versed, I'll be honest. So I'm I'm from Alabama, so I should be able to uh to you know, I'm not too far away from you uh from where you are in Kentucky, but uh yeah, I like a good a good whiskey, good bourbon. Um went to Scotland uh 2019 with my mom, had some good scotch. So yeah, I, you know, I dabble, but I wouldn't say okay. that I'm a, I'm an expert. So uh, I'll lean on you to give the actual profiles versus a, a novice's uh taste. Well, I, I I can speak like an expert and I spent some time in the industry, but 
you know, I don't know that anyone other than uh, maybe very few super tasters and people who really um, are in the distilling game are, are actual experts. We all just try to pretend we are. So, so, but I'll do my best um, impersonation of a whiskey expert. How about that? Perfect. I love it. I'll do the same. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Well, let's go ahead and give it a little whiff, give it a little taste and uh, let me know what you think. Ooh, it smells nice. Yeah, it's got a little heat at the end, but not, but it's, it's a smooth heat. Um, but it's got like a little bit of an oaky honey flavor, kind of sweet. Yeah, the, the nose surprised me. I'll say that. I was expecting, you know, with the rye to get a lot more of those baking spices, clove, uh, pepper, things like that. I, I, I do get it, but you know what I actually get? I get like some bubble gum, some, some kind of fruity bubble gum there on the nose, which is a little oh, shocking. Yeah. Um, yeah, now that you say that, is that double bubble or... Bazooka? I think that might be double bubble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not well versed on my bubble gums these days. No, I probably need to get back in the in the gum game there. But um, but yeah, I mean, it, the, that's good. Though. I still get some. Yeah, I still get some of that kind of candy uh, on the on the on the mouth there, but not nearly as much as I did on the nose. And it definitely kind of reverts to that rye traditional rye profile of a lot of those spices. But it's really good. I mean, I more often than not, when I'm drinking a rye, it's in a cocktail. But uh, every once in a while, I like to uh, mix it up and and drink a rye neat or on the rocks and get you, you know, something a little different than a lot of the the sweeter, um, you know, bourbons might. So good stuff. Yeah, no, I like it. I like it. What what made you decide to mix bourbon in with the, with the podcast about uh, investing? <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, I think it's when I think back on my legal drinking age life, of course, I think about <laughs> so many of the good conversations I've had, the educational ones, the insightful ones, the ones where um, maybe the bourbon had something to do with it. Sometimes I'm sure it did. Sometimes it maybe, maybe didn't. It was just uh, maybe right place, right time. Um, but so many of those great conversations were, were uh, with a, with a glass of whiskey in my hand. So I just thought it'd be cool to kind of take something, a little piece of Kentucky and a, and a kind of a piece of my story and uh, mix it with the with the podcast, and maybe eke out a little bit more truth from uh, the guests that, that come on. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, get the guests nice and lubricated before you uh, start asking the tough questions and get into some interesting topics. I like that. Exactly. So, so be careful there. <laughs> yeah, and you gave me the the high proof one too. So we'll see how this goes. All right. Well, sounds good. I wanted to start. You know, I, I mentioned I hadn't talked a whole lot about personal finance on this show, and it's something I do want to touch on a lot more often. And maybe it's a Southern thing. Uh, we're both, you know, from the Southern U.S., so maybe it's maybe it's a thing here, or, or maybe it's more broad than I than I kind of think. But money is really taboo in a lot of places um, inside of a lot of families. It's just something people are very uncomfortable talking about. Uh, it's right up there with with sex, politics, and religion. <laughs> As far as things, you know, you, d- you don't bring up in front of people you just met and things like that. And while I certainly understand some of the reasons for that, I think it does create a lot of situations where people grow up and they haven't been exposed to some of the just really fundamental, basic finance concepts, you know, whether that's assets and liabilities and credit and home ownership and investing stocks, bonds, and, you know, just uh, compound interest and all of these things that are that are really important um, as people transition from, you know, being kids to being adults and having responsibility. And why do you think that is? And, and what are, what do you think, how do you think we can solve that and make people understand these concepts a little bit earlier and a little bit more broadly? Yeah. 
Really, really tough question. I don't know that I've got the uh, <laughs> the answer, but I can definitely give you my perspective. I think part of it has to do with how much we wrap our identity into money and finances and not the fact that like a number represents that you're successful, which is definitely part of it. Um, but it also like if you think about following money and as a financial advisor, um, you can see a lot of people's priorities based on where they spend their money, how they spend it, what they do. Um, you know, and, and I think that has a lot to do with it. We just tie so much of our identity into, into money and finances, whether it's how much we have, how we spend it. And it can be really difficult to talk about in certain instances. And I think that unfortunately, the times when we do talk about it, they tend to be in ways that actually aren't beneficial, right? Like someone will tell you that they went to a casino and, you know, made $400 at a casino, right? But they're not going to tell you that, how much they made on their bonus because they worked really hard, right? Necessarily. So right. Um, there's like all these different, like weird times where we're able to talk about it or say you have no money, like in college, everyone's broke. People are broke. Like it's easy to talk about money when you don't have it. Right. That's an easy thing to talk about at certain times um, in certain parts of your life. But when you're at a stage in your life where you've got a family or things like that, and you are going through a hard time, maybe it's not, you know, you're not having those conversations. I think that's something that, uh, you know, I don't really know why we do that as a society, but I think that it's, it's not healthy. Um, and I think there's a healthy way to talk about money. There's definitely an unhealthy way to talk about money in personal finance, but there's a healthy way to talk about it that I think, um, really, really can be powerful. And I think it has to do with your relationship with money and understanding what that is before you start speaking or when you're talking to someone else, understanding what their relationship is to money, because it's going to be different most likely than yours. I think that's good. And I, I really like the, uh, the casino example and I'm, you know, in Kentucky here, it's all about horse racing. And I cannot tell you how many times people have come up to me and said, Hey, I j-, and I'm guilty of it myself. Hey, I just won, you know, $800, you know, today at the track. For some reason, I never hear about the days where they, where they lose money. I only hear about the wins. If you go <laughs> ask people, I think everyone's winning at, at uh, the horse racing bets all day long. So um, it is an interesting uh, thing. I think people are, it, and it's tough to talk about when you're challenging or facing challenges in anything, whether it's weight loss or, or depression or, you know, whatever it is that you're, you're personally struggling with. It is hard to talk about, but I think when you do talk about those things, it certainly provides an extra boost to helping you resolve them and, you know, and, and start working towards solutions as opposed to, to making them worse. Yeah, absolutely. And, I think there's also this guilt that's associated with with money sometimes that's wrapped into it, whether you, you know, got too much because you inherited it and you end up in a really good situation, you didn't earn it, or you're in the exact opposite and, you know, you're not where you think you should be and you feel guilty for that. And I don't know, it's one of those things where you just, you earn a little bit more money as you start to make more money. I was listening to um, the podcast with uh, with Ben uh, Leibowitz. And, you know, you kind of talked a little bit about uh, a little bit about this, but like, as you start making more money, it, it doesn't have the same impact, right? You need a little bit more to make yourself happy, or you think you need a little bit more. And, and we end up in this like cycle where we can just never be satisfied with, with how much we have. And I think that really goes to just not thinking about what money can do in your life. And I think that's really what personal finance is about is not really the money. It's about everything else that's important to you. And then figuring out what money supports that um, and what you need to, to do to get to where you want to be. So that's my <laughs> two cents there. No, that's a really good way of putting it. And kind of s- sticking with this financial literacy and, and how to talk about money. One of the things that irritates me the most when I think about our education system 
is the fact that in most places in the United States, kids are not taught even the most basic, basic, basic financial um, literacy things that they need to know. And if you ask people, I've asked a lot of people, do you think this should be taught in schools? I don't know that I've ever had anyone say, no, I don't think that should be taught in schools. And yet for some reason, continuously year after year, it doesn't make it into school curriculums in most places in the country. I, I don't understand it, but that's where we're at. So there have to be other solutions um, and other ways for people to learn about money. And of course, the internet really helped speed that up and give access to a lot of people um, information about money. But I love what you're doing. It's a little bit different approach, but I, I downloaded your app. I downloaded the Ostrich app. Just tell us a little bit about your approach with Ostrich, how you came to that kind of platform and, and, and where that came from for you. And uh, we'll get kind of uh, into the weeds there about about the app and, and the way it works and why it works. Yeah, absolutely. So to take a step back, um, I brought up the relationship with money because uh, kind of the impetus for why I even care about this so much is that uh, my parents got divorced because of money. In 2008, when the housing bubble burst, their relationship burst along with it. They didn't have, you know, the same financial goals and how to get there and, you know, all these other things and got over leveraged and hyped up and, you know, buying a property at the beach and rental. And it just ended up blowing up in their faces. And ultimately, it, it was too much for their relationship to handle. And there's real world consequences to not talking about not being financially literate and not being able to talk about your financial goals with a partner or just other people in your life. Um, and so that's ultimately like where the, the idea for ostrich came from, because as you mentioned, the internet has sped up information. You can hop on any social media platform and you'll be inundated with, you know, (laughs) whether it's good advice or bad advice, information around uh, personal finance or what you should be doing with your money. Um, there's all these really awesome tools. There's, you know, countless banks and credit unions and all all these just, you know, different resources. Yet we're not solving the underlying problems. Um, and that's kind of where the idea for Ostrich came from is how can how can we actually help solve these real world problems that come from lack of financial literacy and education? And um, that's just, you know, where the where it came from. So it's looking at things from a different lens. And we've taken some steps with building our platform. Um where we're really trying to align our incentives with our our customers, our users. Um, it's a free app, but I try not to use the term user for uh, <laughs> if you're in software. Yeah. It's like the only other the only other industry that you, that uses the term user is uh, drug dealers, right? So I try to stay <laughs> away from that, uh, but sometimes it's it's hard. Uh, but customers and and people just in general that are using our platform. Um, and helping them figure out what are their life milestones and goals and what do they need to achieve it. I don't care, you know, which banking institution that you use. If you don't know what to use, happy to make recommendations. But at the end of the day, are you actually taking action towards your goals? And I'm sure as a financial advisor, James, you probably uh, spend more time on the emotional side and, you know, talking to talking to your customers and clients on that end versus, you know, drilling deep into the the actual decisions around their portfolio. You're absolutely right. I, I when I meet with prospects or, or whatever, or, or I'm talking to a new client, I kind of tell them, you know, I'm, I'm called, a, you know, a financial advisor or an investment manager, but there are really several roles that I fulfill, and that might be the least important. You know, one is is kind of the the traditional investment manager asset allocator role. The second is an educator, trying to educate them on, you know, not just what I'm doing, but why why I'm making the specific investment recommendations, why I'm recommending 
they do, you know, this or this um, with their money or, you know, whatever the situation is. And the third one is a, a, a behavioral psychologist and, <laughs> and trying to be there um, and help them make wise decisions when the going gets tough. And it's very easy to jump off of the ship because you think it's on fire uh, when in reality it was just a, a reflection, you know, or something like that. So it's really important um, behavior, whether it's investing or just more broadly with money is, is hugely, hugely important. It's much more important really than choosing the right investments. If you're investing and and, and investing the right way, that's going to yield you better results than someone who's maybe not doing it the right way, but they're choosing better, better investments. So, you know, that's where I try to start with people is getting them to think about things in a way that's going to be the most beneficial for them long-term. And then, you know, if we can get the investments right and some of those other things right, that's that's just the icing on the cake. But the hard work was already was just done by getting them in the market, getting them investing consistently, um, getting them to uh, understand not to panic um, when when volatility occurs. And, and that's a good buying opportunity. And I know on your app and we'll get into this, too. You know, you've got a DCA is the way challenge. So we'll talk about about that a little bit. But you're absolutely right. It's the behaviors that that really can can make or break someone financially. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, the behavioral psychologist role, absolutely. And, and, and going back to those behaviors, what are your habits? Cause what happens is, you know, we either end up in autopilot focusing on other things. So if you've developed really good habits, whether it's, you know, working out, if you think about just habits in general, you know, you're, you're going to be healthy. You're going to live a healthier life if you eat right. And it's the same thing with money and finances. If you've developed the right habits, then as you said, it's not about optimizing your investment portfolio to the nth degree. Like, can I get an extra 0.001% return? It's like, are you doing the more, you know, just macro level things that you need to do on a regular basis that, you know, that 0.001% is way less important than actually just investing on a regular basis. Um, And so that's, that's what we've done with the app. It's really focused on creating challenges. And these are financial challenges that are all across personal finance, but are related to um, goals, whether it's saving, saving for, uh, for your first house, or, you know, it's saving for college for your kids, retirement, these big life milestones, and focusing, focusing, helping people build habits based on those milestones. And that's what the challenges do. They're social by nature. So we've really focused on bringing in the social accountability, there's research that shows when you Combine a regular weekly check-in with an accountability partner, you have a 95% higher likelihood of achieving a goal. And so that's what we're really focused on. And so it doesn't, you're not trying to have your money on our app. That's not the purpose of what we're doing. It's really just to focus on those behaviors and owning that customer relationship at a higher level so that when, you know, Wells Fargo has another scandal and you switch over to a different banking institution, that's fine by us, but you've been making the right decisions the whole time. So we're not worried about doing that kind of thing. Um, So yeah. (laughs) <laughs> no, I love it. And, you know, before I found Ostrich, I've had several conversations, you know, one with with here on the podcast with Altruist CEO, Jason Wink, but there have been others just kind of throughout my life as, I, as I've talked to friends and, and clients and other people. Gamifying finance kind of got this really, it came up, I mean, so much during the, the Robin Hood um, kind of GameStop, all, all of that stuff. And we don't need to get into that anymore. It's been <laughs> talked about ad nauseum, I think, but but it is it did lead to an interesting conversation around gamifying finance. Now, that was more about gamifying trading, not finance. Um, it was it was it was about um, 
incentivizing people to trade more frequently and in a certain way. And that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way and, and rightly so. But we were talking about how do you incentivize and gamify good financial behavior, which is often very boring. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, you know, DCAing, uh, you know, creating a portfolio that way is certainly not as exciting as buying options on the next meme stock. It's just not, but it's going to lead to better outcomes. So, you know, we've talked about that. And then I came across the ostrich, which I thought was, was really cool. And that's exactly what you're doing is trying to gamify what may be boring um, as far as, you know, it's not exciting to, to save up, to buy a house by putting in X amount per month or by cutting a subscription service that you're not using, but it's, you know, very, very impactful to someone's finances. So talk a little bit about that, the, the gamifying and, and what some of those challenges are and how you came to the conclusion that that was the way to kind of help people uh, achieve some of their financial goals. Yeah, absolutely. So my, so my girlfriend, she's a teacher, she's a New York city teacher. And, um, as you know, teachers typically aren't paid very well across, uh, across, at least in the United States, we don't typically pay teachers very well. And um, wanting to figure out how can I support her and her friends who are just struggling to get by living in a, the most expensive city, one of the most expensive cities in the entire world. And, you know, not, you know, living on a teacher's salary. And we stumbled into this idea of, uh, of challenges. And we, we ran the first challenge we ever ran was called frugal fall. It was a no spending challenge. What you did was picked one thing that you wanted to cut out spending. So you align, you were aligning something you were already unhappy with to an action that you wanted to save more money, right? So some people picked online shopping, some it was, you know, not eating out at lunch every day. And every day you came in and had a poll and I ran this during Facebook group. So I used a Facebook group, used polling functionality to test out if this concept was going to be successful or not. And it was incredible to see what happened in about a two-week span. People started cutting things that weren't at all related to their one thing that they were trying to cut out spending-wise. People were making better decisions. There was conversation in a way because you could see, oh, it looks like uh, oh, Salimia ended up <laughs> going out and she ate when she wasn't supposed to and like talked about what led to that behavior. And it was like, this is what, this is what it should be about. If we're going to talk about finances and talk about something that's taboo, and create a way where we can apply gamification. We had a leaderboard that I manually did on an Excel spreadsheet and, you know, would post regularly. Um, it was just, it was just really cool to see what would happen. And so we started testing other challenges and then ev eventually building the platform around this idea where we don't need to link to your bank account. We don't need to know every single detail, but let's just focus on one thing that's really important to you. And let's pick one or two challenges that align to that. And that's what we're going to focus on. Um, and it's, it's not, it's not completely new, right? There's, you've probably heard of the avalanche or snowball method of debt pay down. I think Dave Ramsey talks about yeah. snowball and there's psychological benefits too, to gamification. And it's like, how can you apply that in a way that is powerful? Um, cause to your point, like incentivizing trading isn't, <laughs> isn't necessarily a good thing, right? Especially if you're a retail no. trader, you don't necessarily know what you're doing. You're, you have a day job. You're not focused on this. Like if you knew how much money the big guns spend on information and the like you would just, you would never get into the markets. Right. So you've got to do it in a way that it makes sense. And I think you're right. The gamification is really focused on 
aligning to the mission. And that was really important for us to nail first and foremost. If we align everything back to this mission of helping people improve financial well-being, and that that's the number one thing that we want to incentivize with everything that we do on the app, it makes it a lot easier to make decisions around how do you apply gamification in a way that is meaningful towards someone's financial future. Yeah, not that you asked for my feedback, but I'll tell you a couple of things I really like about what you're doing. One, there's a very simplistic element to it. You're not trying to do 100 things at once. It really narrows the focus. Um, And I think people very easily get intimidated when they start to think about money and how, you know, they might know I need to do better, but they don't know where or how to do better. So this gives them a couple targets that might be low hanging fruit um, that makes it a lot more achievable and and sustainable. Um, To me, it's, you know, I I always come back to like using workout references because I think there are so many. Um, parallels between, you know, becoming physically fit and becoming financially fit. And, you know, it's, it's like going to the gym. If, if someone who's out of shape, they haven't been to the gym in five years and they're, you know, all of a sudden they make this goal of, I want to get in shape and in two months and I'm going to work out for three hours every day and um, just totally change my diet overnight. And I, and I'm really, you know, excited to do that. That's probably not going to last too long. That's, that's a, a lot of massive change in a, in a short period of time, they're going to burn out. They're going to hurt themselves. <laughs> they're going to do, do something that causes them to stop. But what I like about your approach is it's these very small kind of micro transactions and micro um, behaviors that you're changing. And one thing we know about money and you look at compound interest, sometimes those micro behaviors can have drastic results when they start building up over a period of time. So I really love that about the ostrich approach. And I think it's, it just gives people a starting point that seems a lot more feasible, you know, e- even then, you know, as a financial advisor, let's come make a financial plan. That's intimidating for a lot of people yeah. to say, Oh, I've got to, I've got to dig up all of these things about my life and turn them over to you. And we're going to discuss them. That seems scary. Uh, whereas this is, Hey, let's look at where, where you want to focus and here are some things you can do. And by the way, humans love challenges. Uh, <laughs> so let's make it a, a little more fun and you can do it that way. So I love it. I think it's, I think it's a great platform. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And, you know, I think that's the, the key is, is, um, you know, helping people focus on the things that are most important. One of the things that we learned early on, and especially working initially with a group of, of teachers was that a lot of people were in student loan debt, like, even to get a small pay bump, you've got to go get another master's degree and you're probably taking out another student loan and linking everything together and looking at a really large negative number on a mint or a personal capital or a dashboarding app can be really deflating. And it doesn't <laughs> yeah. necessarily say anything about you and your worth and, and everything else that you're, that you're doing, but it can be really, really depressing to look at that. Um, Definitely. So that's the key is like focusing on, on one thing and you know, I'm sure you probably experienced that with your clients, some people that come in that maybe aren't, you know, too, too excited about where they are. They know they need to figure things out. And, you know, that's, that's a tough conversation. And it's how do you focus on the, the one, one or two things that are really important that are going to bring value to your life, but also set you up for long-term success. Absolutely. That, those are the hardest conversations to have, right? Is to, especially if someone's coming to me and they're saying, here's, here's my goal and here's my time frame, and here's where I'm at and telling them, you know, as of now, you're, 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 you're behind, you're, you're going to fall short of meeting that goal. But I try to do that in a constructive way and say, Hey, here's where you're at today. You know, if, if we look at this in a, in a straight line, you, you're, you might, you're probably not going to get where you want to be, but that's okay. That's where you're at today. Let's try to look at 
how we can change that outcome. Can we do things differently? Can we adjust your goal slightly, but to a point to where you're still be happy with the outcome? How do we get to where you, you get an outcome that you like? And it's not always the easiest conversation to have, but it's a really important conversation to have. Um, the good conversations are the ones when someone comes to you and says, how am I doing? And you say, great, go take a vacation. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, you've got, you've got some, you got some room here, go do something you want to do, you know? Um, and, and, but both of those conversations are important because I want people to, to be able to live. I'm not, I'm not the advisor who's going to tell you save every cent. Um, don't, you know, don't have fun. Think about the future only. I mean, we live once and we don't know how long it's going to be. So I know, I know I don't live that way. And I wouldn't want someone telling me, Hey, you know, James, you should be saving every single penny and thinking about the future. Like, what about now? I've got a, you know, I've got a one-year-old daughter. I've got all of these things I want to do, but balancing those two things, how do I enjoy life today, but also make sure I can continue enjoying life um, down the road and, and that my family can, can feel secure and safe and, and all of those things. So it's important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of the other things that I want to touch on is that when you look at like some of the app solutions out there, people don't focus on, and, I, and I'm sure you do with, with your practice, because you're actually sitting down and do <laughs> actually helping advise people from a holistic perspective. But what people miss is that there's other things like being able to give back is a really great way to um, improve your life quality and support things that you care about. And that's something that you know, I've never seen Robin Hood suggest someone go donate money to their church <laughs> or to, you know, and, and not to, and I don't want, I don't mean to knock on Robin Hood because they're, they're have a very specific focus, but um, you know, those are some of the things that we've brought into the app as well as giving challenges. How can I give back? And if I don't have money, is there, are there other solutions that I can, that I can use? And just thinking about more of that holistic approach, which is what um, I believe personal finance is really about is thinking about you and, and your goals um, from a holistic perspective and being able to support those. So it's, it is easy to pick on Robin Hood. I've done it on this podcast <laughs> too many times. And, and, but, but you are right. And, and I actually do applaud Robin Hood because, you know, one thing they're doing that I think is really important is they are getting people interested in investing. And that's really important. It doesn't matter how you get there. Yes, many of those people who are going that route and doing some of the things that, you know, that you're seeing and hearing about in the news and, and on forums and things like that, they're going to have bad experiences. But, They'll learn from them and um, they are opening up the, the market to a new demographic. And I think that's a good thing, even though I don't always agree with how they're doing it. Um, I think it's going to lead to a generation of investors that maybe start a little bit earlier. And um, just having that interest level and having those experiences is, is going to help. So yeah. I, I do think that's that's valuable. So, But it, it is easy. It's really, really easy. <laughs> it is. It is. So it's funny because I try to think back when I first started investing, like how would Robin Hood have impact, impacted what I did. And I was, I was lucky, like, like I said, even though my parents' relationship, you know, fell apart because of finances, the one thing that I'm truly blessed is that I, uh, I, as a kid was a child actor, so to speak, I did like commercials and like little things, nothing, nothing crazy, but I had income. And so my parents, my mom went to go do a, a tax course to figure out like how to save money on their taxes or figure out how to file taxes for their property. Cause she liked to do everything herself. And uh, during that process, she figured out that she needed to open up, you know, an IRA for me. So I had a traditional and a Roth at the age of, you know, whatever, six, seven, eight. Um, so I got into investing because I had those accounts and was like, well, I want to do something. And in high school, started playing around with it and, you know, made some dumb decisions on a penny stock email, I think that I got and, you know, saw the trend, it ran up and down and they just pumped it and dumped it and got into all that. And I'm 
I, I never made any money on any of those, but I didn't lose too much. But uh, that's how I started getting into it. So I think you're right. We've got to applaud, I think, what Robinhood has done in terms of getting people's interest in investing um, and opening it up in a way that it's it's more accessible. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and I don't ever want to come across as holier than thou. I, I can tell you stories about load, front loading my college courses for early in the morning so I could get home around noon and day trade for the rest of the afternoon. So not, <laughs> n- not the healthiest, um, best way to, to invest. But I will tell you this, I, I learned a lot of what not to do that now I can share with people. So, and, and, I, and, I, and I'm like you, I actually got really lucky and, and um, you know, it, tur- it turned out just fine. But um, those were not healthy habits that I was forming. And fortunately, I learned that before, before I lost um, a lot of money and I was able to take those lessons and, and apply them in a much more positive uh, way. So, so yeah, there are a lot of ways to go about learning, but I think the most important thing is, is that people learn whether it's, you know, when they're six and seven and eight, nine, 10 years old, because their parents had the foresight to open IRAs for them, or, be, you know, when they're 50 and they realize they've got some catching up to do it happens at different times for different people, but it's never too late to start working towards, you know, the future, even if that future is sooner than you want it to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. And James, you mentioned the challenge DCA is the way, and I don't know that we ever defined it, but DCA stands for dollar cost averaging, which you've probably talked about on this podcast, but for those that aren't familiar, it's just a way to invest on a regular basis that allows you to, um, it's one of the most effective ways to invest and it really doesn't require a lot of thinking um, past the initial setup, but essentially you allocate the same amount of money, whatever the regular basis is, every couple of weeks, every month, whatever that that regular time frame is, and you buy either an index fund or whatever your asset allocation is in your portfolio. And if the market's up, you buy less because your money goes doesn't go as far. And if the market's down, you end up buying more. And that's where the averaging comes in. You kind of average in to the market. And it's one of the most effective ways to invest because you're putting money in on a regular basis. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think a lot of that goes back to, you mentioned, you know, psychology earlier, a lot of it's purely psychological. It's the fact that when the market goes down, you know, hey, I'm actually going to pick up more shares because the market's down, as opposed to thinking about it in a, in a more negative light of, oh my gosh, I'm losing money. Um, I need to do something drastic here. So that's to me is the biggest benefit of, of DCA, um, aside from the actual mathematical uh, situation of, of, you know, at, you know, lowering your cost basis by being consistent and adding the same amount, no matter what the market's doing at that particular time. But, but yeah, the, the DCA challenge, I was looking through the challenges, the DCA is the way was, was my favorite unsurprisingly because it's an investing challenge. But um, I do think that's just a great way for people to invest. And like you said, it doesn't take a lot of knowledge. I mean, you can be as, as, as simple as, you know, picking a, an index fund and there are many out there and putting in X amount of dollars per paycheck. And you do that indefinitely. And, and if you get a raise, you can add a little more to that and continue it. And uh, it's very easy. It's simple and it's effective. Yeah. You capture that power of the compounding interest, which is just, you know, it's just, that's, that's really the magic of investing, right? It's just that compounding effect and you don't see it till, (laughs) until the end. Uh, So it's hard to believe in sometimes early on, but as you start to see it over the years, you know, like I can look back on my portfolio and see how much it's gone up. And I have, you know, and it's just, you know, I haven't touched most of it. I'm like buy and hold and, you know, never, never sell. Like that's, that's my investing philosophy. Like I don't want to sell as long as I've made, you know, good decisions, but 
uh, yeah, that power of compounding when you understand it is just so, so, so incredible. Yeah. That's the old, uh, Berkshire method. Our favorite holding period is forever. So (laughs) exactly. Let's shift a little bit. We've talked about ostrich and we've talked about some of those things. I talk a lot about innovation on this show because when I think about investing and just through my personal experiences and, and looking back in history, I think companies that are innovating and coming up with ways to change how we live, how we work, how we communicate and interact and play and all these things, those are the companies that are really poised for for success in the future. So I try to kind of identif- identify macro trends and and find companies that are capturing you know some of those things. But fintech, I've talked on this show with Jason Wink and, and with Tyrone Ross on the crypto digital asset side, but. Fintech is obviously very broad and, and what you're doing certainly fits into the financial technology kind of, you know, sector. But I want to talk about something I found really interesting personally, and that's kind of the no code um, trend and, and what no code basically is for anyone who, who hasn't heard of no code. It's basically a way where someone can build a software, you know, build software or build an app without actually having to know, you know, coding languages. So, similar to like a Squarespace or a Wix with websites where you can go in and you're kind of choosing certain things, where to put pictures and fonts and things like that. No code is kind of a similar way to do that more robustly with software. And as I understand it, and I thought this was pretty cool, and I don't know if the actual finished app was no code or just, you know, the minimally viable product, the MVP, (laughs) when you guys launched was no code. But I'm I'm really curious because that's a trend I've been following a little bit. So tell me about that experience and how that went. Yeah. So my my professional experience is not in building apps. Um, <laughs> I uh, am was in software sales and was exposed a little bit to no code from from that experience, um, but more so from like an enterprise perspective as a way to help coders develop quicker. So it was low code versus no code, which they get meshed together because they're they're pretty similar. But um, low code serves more developers to quickly where they know a little bit, but you still don't have to like code every single line of everything. Um, so I got exposed to it there. And when I set out to, to found Ostrich with my co-founder, we were looking for ways to build it. I interviewed like 30 different development shops. Some of them were US-based. Some of them were India, Ukraine. Like you just name any, every continent we talked to someone that developed <laughs> on that continent and um, the cost just, it just wasn't feasible in terms of, of, what, uh, of what we needed. And so I kind of stumbled back into to no code. And the app that is currently live, so we're recording this in the middle of June. The app that is live is, is purely in no, no code. So I built that myself. That was, that's it. No, no developers helped us get that thing set up. Um, so that was, uh, that, that was just essentially me. And, um, we've now since brought on some engineers to help build out a more robust experience. So I talked about the social aspect, the current version is really light on that. Um, and just improving the user experience a little bit. So we are moving into a more traditional kind of software product, but no code tools allow you to quickly get something out. It allows you to, um, build for cheap. I spent no money on the app because of the tool that we used. It's called AppGyver and they've got a forever free tier for essentially anyone under 5 million in revenue. So <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty cool what you can do, but there's so many different no-code tools out there and I would recommend that you 
if you are thinking about building a software product or have an idea is kind of scope out what you think the feature set is, whether it needs to be mobile, mobile and web, just Android, just iOS, because those decisions will weigh into like whether you pick which tool, but there's so many that are out there and they're only getting better. And I would say that if you're building a software product, it's almost better to do that. Even if you know how to code, you're just going to get something out quicker. That's, that's, you know, easier to test and see if people respond well to it. You'll save time, you'll save money. And then you can actually go focus on the things that people find valuable. So it was an experience. (laughs) I I, I think it's great. And I'll be honest, I was, I'm I'm still pretty surprised um, because I think your app is, is pretty polished. So I was, uh, I'm impressed. I'll put it that way. I just think that's so powerful and I think it's transformative um, to people who want to start businesses because especially digital app-based businesses, that is the new economy in a lot of ways. And before you're right, you either had to know how to code, which can take years and years and coding languages are always changing and, and things like that. Or you've got to go pay a shit ton of money <laughs> to somebody somewhere, probably in out uh, on the West coast who knew those things and, and could uh, implement them for you. And then oftentimes you see people, they spent all this money, they had this, you know, app or, or, or site software created, and there really wasn't a customer that wanted it. So they spent all this money and now they can't sell it. So I think it's a great way to a, just test a product and see, Hey, is there a need for this? Is there a want for this? Because just because you think something is, is desirable, like a lot of people are going to want this doesn't mean that's actually the case. And I think that's really cool. So uh, I'm kind of glad. I think you're the first person I've talked to that I uh, that I knew for a fact that they built and released um, what I think is a really good product with a no code solution. So really cool stuff. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And it's it's such a great way to like learn as well. Like I can now actually speak to a developer because I've used a no code tool where I started to learn a little bit about you know, I don't know how to code. I still don't know the languages, but I can at least speak to a level now where I can actually have a productive conversation. Cause I think that's the other thing. If you're trying to build a software product and you don't, you're not a technical person. As soon as you start hearing lingo, it's going to go over your head. It's the same thing with finance, right? Personal finance. Some people start throwing around terms that you don't understand. It goes right over your head and you're like, well, there's, they must be smarter than me. And that's uh, that's not necessarily the right way to uh, to make a decision about your finances nor about building a, a software product. So it's it's really really a great a great tool. And again, the the products that are coming out for no code are just even getting even better. So I think we'll see way more solutions from people that um, don't know how to code but are going to create really great companies and products around them. I love, let's, we can just step back a little bit further. I love just talking, chopping it up with entrepreneurs. It's one of my favorite things to do because I just, there are so many good stories about how businesses started and challenges and just really weird uh, <laughs> things that happened along journeys that, you know, are always fascinating and, and oftentimes inspiring to me because, you know, I, I own several different businesses and I've got some stories of my own that I enjoy sharing with people about some of the just interesting situations that that come up from time to time. So just uh, as an entrepreneur, I mean, tell me a little bit about what, what were some of the challenges you had? I mean, you went from working full time to now, you know, this is this is your, uh, your, your main uh, line of work. This is what you're doing now. So talk about some of the things that maybe you didn't expect and some of the challenges that that popped up and, and surprised you. Yeah, it's definitely taken a lot longer than I anticipated <laughs> to get to this point. Um, so I think that's something to to note, but 
I, I kind of skipped over when I talked about how we tested with Facebook groups and then, you know, built this, the platform with no code tools. We built something that didn't work that no one responded to. So we actually tried to transition that frugal fall into a web version that I built using WordPress and plugins. And it was a terrible experience. It utterly failed. Like <laughs> of the 40 people that we were testing with, I think three people made it over and only one person continued to use it. It was, it was awful. Right. And it yeah. wasn't that it was, and we knew that it, we knew that the challenge structure worked because we just watched it for two months and like right. the experience. So we knew it worked and it was, the fact that, you know, we learned from that though, the fact that it wasn't mobile, we didn't have a strong notification system. It wasn't something that people were, could easily navigate and, uh, learned, learned a lot from that experience. So that was definitely, uh, a, definitely an example of just like falling flat on your face and be like, Oof, maybe we should have, uh, rethought this. Yeah. But, but I think the important thing is you did learn from it. I mean, and had you, had you gone full into that, Let's let's make a website, you know, experience for this, and spend a lot of time and money on it. That would have uh, potentially killed you guys. So, oh yeah, absolutely. Like people want notifications and they want it direct. Because if I'm trying to create habits and behaviors, like it needs to be right in front of me. Like it needs to be that easy to just quickly get in, you know, take an action. Yes, I did this. No, I didn't do this. Or oh, thanks for the reminder. I'm going to go transfer the money and then come back and check in. Like it needs to be that quick to get people to, uh, to actually take action. I think one of the other interesting things about Ostrich is that we, we turned down a $60,000 investment pretty early on. So we've not raised any capital up to this point. It's all been bootstrapped savings, going back to <laughs> making some good personal finance decisions earlier on um, that put, put myself and my co-founder in a position where we can work on Ostrich full-time. Um, but we had uh, an overseas investor that wanted to put 60, 60K into the company. He wanted 15%. We didn't really, didn't really know. Like there was just, there's a lot of red flags. Um, but that was a tough decision because we hadn't built anything yet. We actually hadn't started building. He just really liked the concept. And it's hard to, to, turn, down, uh, to turn down money sometimes, but it ended up actually making us focus more on the customer, the product and making sure we got that right. Cause I could have, I can guarantee you that if we would have gotten that money, we would have built the wrong thing. We'd have wasted it. Easy to say in hindsight, but you're right. I mean, especially a young startup with no product to, to have someone say, Hey, do you want this money? Yeah. I could see how that'd be a tough, a tough uh, situation to say, no, I think we're good. We're going to bootstrap it with our personal savings, by the way. So, yeah. uh, I mean, I think that's cool. And I, I love a good bootstrap uh, business story just because the grit and determination and the sacrifice that that has to go into it. And um, it's just so impressive to me, the things that people can do with, with limited resources and not to say that that's it's any better, you know, necessarily than going out and, and going through the fundraising process. But to me, I just, I just love it. It's very old school. Um, and it takes a certain type of person who's really willing to say, here's the way we're going to do this. And it's for better or for worse, <laughs> you know, we're going to stick to it and not that you'll stick to it forever. I mean, you, you may raise some funds, you know, at some point, but, but I think that's really cool that you've made it this far without raising a, a, a penny. Yeah. It, I mean, it hasn't been easy. That's, that's for sure. Uh, I mean, you know, we, when you have an investor, you almost have a boss again, you know, someone yeah. that, that you report to, which as much as, as much as, uh, especially entrepreneurs typically don't like bosses, there is something to that, right. Of like having someone that's also has a goal and, 
you know, you're responsible to and can help keep you on track and guidance. And there's a lot of things that come with the right investor in terms of knowledge and experience that we've definitely had to try to figure out on our own. But I think the one thing is, if you're an entrepreneur, interested in entrepreneurship, the one thing that seems to be true is that it's such a giving community. Like you can cold email LinkedIn, uh, you know, a, a founder in a relevant space, and they will make time to talk to you because they've been there. They know that it's tough. It's not easy. And, um, you know, starting a company, as you know, James can be, can be kind of lonely. Um, not your friends and family typically won't understand. And there's a lot of like internal self, uh, reflection that you've got to do in order to, to be successful. And it's definitely not easy, right? Cause no one will know if you get up and don't do anything that day because you're not reporting to anyone. Only you're going to know. That, right. Right. But That's if right. you don't take action, the business doesn't move forward. So you've got to, you know, you've got to be, got to be focused. Yeah, that's been one of the pleasant surprises for me, really, um, going out and starting my own firm. I was expecting like, you know, if there's some other people doing the same thing, like they're not going to want to talk to me. Like I'm the, you know, the, the competition, so to speak, but it's really totally the opposite. I've been blown away by the fact uh, that there are so many people out there, not not even just willing to answer questions, like really willing to engage with you yeah. and help you really build your business. And there's a lot less friction than I anticipated. So that's been a really, really pleasant uh, surprise because even, even within some of the larger firms, the competition, it's like this dog eat dog mentality. Um, it's that scarcity uh, viewpoint. Um, but, you know, let's face it, there's enough out there for, for everybody and people who are willing to help other people, it comes back around. And, and uh, I'm always happy to, to talk to entrepreneurs and share my experiences for better, or for worse. And, I, I try not to give advice <laughs> per se, because, you know, I don't generally know what's what's right, but I can share my experiences and, and what's worked for me and what I've seen work for other people. And hopefully that's helpful. Yeah. Do you have any do you have any examples from your own entrepreneurial experience that have um, really impacted you, like challenges that you overcame? Or I'm, I'm just curious to, to hear your your side of it as well. Yeah. So I'll go, I'll go outside of the financial uh, stuff just to mix it up a little bit, but me and my wife and some friend of friends of ours started a candle company. Um, and obviously I love bourbon. We've, we've kind of covered that. <laughs> so we started a candle company that um, the idea was we made it in whiskey glasses. So the actual candles poured into a whiskey glass and then it comes with a cocktail recipe and all this stuff. So we started this, you know, several years ago with um, really, it was a challenge. My friend Alex Janez, good friend, um, he actually heard me on Bigger Pockets podcast, which I was on, goodness, years ago when I was uh, uh, young and still trying to just learn everything I could, soak up everything guy. I was like the 20 something guest on the Bigger Pockets podcast when it was first starting. Um, and he was living in Lexington and getting his MBA. So he hit me up on LinkedIn. We ended up going to Starbucks. Then, you know, had a, had a great conversation. Then we ended up taking our, you know, wives out to dinner together and everyone just kind of clicked. And we actually just decided, Hey, let's challenge ourselves. Like let's start a, a company. We don't even have an idea. Let's just start a company. Let's bootstrap it. Let's just see what we can do. This was about five years ago. And, um, so we started it with $2,000 a piece. That was what we decided to put in. And, and, um, his brother ended up joining us. His brother, Pat, is a phenomenal um, designer as far as, you know, graphic design and branding and all that stuff. So we started Wixology Candles and 
goodness, some of the um, challenges that we faced, but it's been just such a fun experience. And, it, you know, we have outsourced very little. We've done the bookkeeping, the production, the fulfillment, the design. We've designed the packaging, you know, all of those things from obviously none of us knew anything about candle making. So, you know, that was, I learned so much um, just from that experience, but I'll give you a recent example. We're getting ready to be on the Today Show um, just a few weeks ago, actually, um, on Jill Martin's Stills and Deals segment. Nice. So, congrats. Really, <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. Really cool. We were really pumped about it. Well, as you've probably seen in other areas with COVID, supplies, like getting supplies and cert- for certain things just got really difficult. So we were about two months out and we had used up all of our wax and could not get any more. And we had to have 6,000 units minimum ready to go a few months later. You talk about desperation. (laughs) So (laughs) we were calling wax manufacturers all across the country and outside of the country to try to figure something out. And by the way, a lot of the wax distributors and and resellers don't want you to know who the manufacturer is because they don't want you going to the manufacturer. It took every ounce of internet sleuth that we could uh, conjure up to figure out where who was making the wax. We got the wax literally the first batch. I think the weekend that they were coming down, they now live in Ohio to to do this massive production run. And it was just I, I, I'll put it this way: we have learned in the last three months. We have learned a whole hell of a lot about <laughs> supply chain management, having backup suppliers, uh, getting out ahead on inventory, just all of these things. And I know COVID wasn't obviously normal normal times, um, but there were some valuable lessons for us on um, on some of those things. And, and manufacturing anything, even as simple as candles are, um, it you know those things are really, really, really important. We actually rented a U-Haul. And they had to stop by the the company that makes the tubes. So our candles come in like a tube instead of a box um, to pick them up, to bring them down in a U-Haul. I mean, it's just, it's, it's the true bootstrap story and that's what we wanted. And, and we've learned, I've learned so much. I mean, everything from the financial side of running a business and thinking about cash flow and um, all of these things. And, you know, as you're building, especially in something like what we're doing, that's not, digital. I mean, not fully digital anyway. As we grow, we need a lot more cash. When you're buying 50,000 units of glass instead of 500, you know, you need a lot more money. So managing that, of course, your sales are higher too, but it's kind of funny. People, I think, uh, and and we're doing very well. I'm very happy with, with what we've done so far, especially considering all of us have other jobs. People, I think, think like you guys must be making so much money. But what they don't realize is every single penny is going back into the business because now we've got to buy three times as much inventory. So <laughs> it's just the illusions, I think, of entrepreneurship. It seems so sexy and so, so uh, interesting and fun. And it is. It really, truly is. I love it. I can't imagine, you know, not doing it. But um, sometimes it's those challenges and those situations where you're scratching your head like, why am I in a candle factory at two in the morning on a Saturday? 
making candles? Like how, what in my life led me here? So no, it's, yeah, that's, that's a great image. Right. And I think it's so true of entrepreneurship, right? Like you just end up doing things that you never thought you would ever be doing. And, you know, when you think about that kind of sexy definition of an entrepreneur, you know, you, you're the boss, you just kind of rake in the cash and you tell people what to do. And that is not it at all. It is, you are in the weeds. You are the first person that are taking hits and you're the one that's up at 2am. It's not, you know, your employee who's nine to five or whatever it is, right? Like you're the one that that's, that's making those sacrifices. I'm not, I'm not even kidding. When we, when we were, we started out making these in my basement before we got a dedicated space. I am almost certain my neighbors thought I was making meth like cooking meth in my basement because I'd be down there at night. I've, I'd be wearing like an apron looking like, uh, the, you know, what's his name from breaking bad. Like it was, you know, I'd be carrying boxes of stuff in and out and like chemicals and stuff like that. So, uh, I was fully expecting some sort of SWAT intervention in the middle of the night, but never happened. Yeah. They, they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have found anything. Just, uh, just some candles. And some whiskey. No, glass. no, would have smelled great though. Yeah. What I so one of the things I think that's important that you brought up is that I'm now finding myself doing more things that are entrepreneurial now that I've stepped out of that corporate world. So like my girlfriend I mentioned is a teacher and she like loves she always buys those silly like t-shirts that say, you know, funny sayings and things like that. And so we've started doing drop shipping and have an Etsy store and you know, all this stuff. Cause I was like, all right, instead of you buying other people's products, like why don't you just make your own? Cause you don't, you don't like half their stuff anyway, but you're still going to buy it. So let's make our own and then we'll sell some on Etsy and that'll just pay for, you know, whatever teacher saying or whatever it is that you want. And like have learned a ton through that process and not nearly as intense yeah. as, as uh, actually manufacturing ourselves. But there's a lot that even goes into managing a, you know, a drop shipping digital business. So absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, another thing to think about is we, we all have weaknesses. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you mine. I am awful. I suck. Maybe it's because I'm too old. I don't know what it is. I suck at social media. Like, it, I, I feel like my posts are pretty good, but I, I'm not good at like gaining followers. Like, I don't know what it is. Like, I'm just not good at that. And I know that's not an area where I need to be involved really, other than maybe kind of helping set strategy. But as far as actually implementing that's just not not where I'm at. And I'm, I'm a fairly poor marketer in general. So as I grow my you know financial firm and as we grow the candle company, those are things that I know, hey, that those would be a good use of, of our money um, because I, I'm not inherently good at those things for whatever reasons. And realizing what your weaknesses are is, is just as important as capitalizing on your strengths, I think. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. And you start to learn those pretty quickly. <laughs> Uh, yes, as an do. entrepreneur, because they're t- they tend to be the things that don't get done on a regular basis. At least that's, that's been my point. experience. It's like, wow, I have not done a social media post in three weeks. Uh, yeah, it's probably uh, probably time to bring someone in that knows what they're doing. Yep. Speaking of, I I need to post a social media <laughs> today, but I am I am going to outsource source that because a is when you're not good at something, you tend not to like it, and vice versa. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, you, you need to do what you're spend your time most wisely. We, we all have limited time. And if you're wasting it doing something that's not very effective, then, you know, you could reallocate that time into something that does a little more for you. Exactly. Have you, are you using virtual assistants? So this is something that I've done recently 
um, and start talking to VAs to help with some of the things. And I'm literally onboarding this week, someone to help on, on one of those fronts. So I don't know what you've found successful or anything, but it's uh, a new area for me. Well, I'll tell you a couple of things I did. I, I do not have an assistant or use a VA, but my wife is absolutely brilliant um, <laughs> when it comes to planning and scheduling. And I'm sure if she were here right now, she would say, I need to uh, make other arrangements here, here very soon. But she does a whole lot for me. And then I actually recently re- kind of rethought when I, when I knew I was going to make the transition from working for another firm and where I had an assistant to going out on my own. I knew I had to think about how, how am I planning and how am I keeping track of time and tasks and things like that. And I will tell you, I was not good at using, it's not that I wasn't good at it. I did not effectively use CRM when I was with my previous firm uh, because I could get away with not doing it. Now I, I just had to dedicate myself. These things I have to do better at. I've got to do better at, at taking notes and making sure I'm putting those notes into the system every single time. I need to make sure that I'm using a task management system that's not a book and a piece uh, or and a pen. I need to have something that when something comes up on the fly, no matter where in the world I'm at, I can add a new task and a, and a due date and I'll get it done. So I've really had to kind of recalibrate um, how I think about production and getting things done. And it's been effective for me and I probably will need to still, uh, whether that's a VA for starters or uh, looking for someone to uh, come in and, and help with some of those things. But I've been fortunate to, um, in the in the asset management world, in the financial planning world, the tools are so much more advanced than they used to be. I can be so productive as a, as a solo practitioner compared to what you could have done even four years ago. That's awesome. Yeah, the tools coming a long way definitely, definitely helps. And you're spot on like CRM stuff and sales like, yeah, sometimes I'd enter it or enter the minimum just to you know, do what you needed to do to report up. But uh, as as an entrepreneur, you're like, man, I need to be able to keep every single note because I've got so many things going on that I'm going to forget something. And then if I need to bring someone else in, like they're going to have no idea. And I'm not even going to know where to start in terms of getting them up to speed. So it's yeah, it's it becomes a lot more important (laughs) to to record all that digitally, especially. So don't you love that rush, though? Like I it is sometimes it, it can be stressful, but just that rush of like. I've got to get these things done. I I just really enjoy that. Not to the point to where I'm going to like neglect my family or like brag about working 16 hours or something like that. Like my family and my friends and doing things I want to do is why I'm doing what I do. But I do just, I I love that um, sense of accomplishment. And I love the sense of really the challenge of just how, how do I get all these things done? And, And I really try to embrace that and not look at it in a negative light when I get up every morning, like, Oh my gosh, I got to do this, this, and this. I try to look at it as man today, I'm going to do this, this, and this and get these things knocked out and, and it's going to be a good day. So I love it. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to think about it. I'm still working on that. There's some things where I'm like, Oh man, I don't want to do that today, but I know I got to get it done. And other things where you get super excited and try to like prioritize those activities. Like we've got some meetings with some pretty big financial institutions that want to roll this out potentially with, their customers, employees from an internal use case. And so it's like getting jazzed up about those moments and those little wins just mean yeah. so much more as an entrepreneur. Like a meeting going well, is just like can put you like just to the moon in terms of like absolutely how happy you are. It's, it's awesome. Absolutely. So share with me, I'm, I'm just curious. I think 
you know, where you're at is really cool. You guys have, I mean, you've gotten a lot further than a lot of companies get. You have a product now out there um, for people to use. What's your, what's your kind of long-term goal? I mean, what's your end game? What are you guys trying to achieve with, with Ostrich? Yeah, I think for us, it's, it's definitely going global. So one of the things that I've had the, you know, just been blessed to be able to do is travel. And, and um, I spent a year after college teaching English in Thailand through the State Department and like had these really great opportunities. And I can tell you that financial literacy and lack of it is not a U.S. specific problem. Um, it is a global challenge. And I think for me, being able to, when I see where Ostrich goes long-term, it's being able to bring people from different parts of the world that still have similar goals together and actually see um, some of these some of these things that are um, consequences of not having financial literacy um, go away um, when it comes to seeing no suicides because someone saw, saw on a Robinhood account that they were $750,000 in debt. In reality, they weren't. It was an error on their screen, right? That's a right. real story right. from you know, the pandemic, a 20 year old trader committed suicide. And yeah, it's like, if, if I can impact one or two of those people, it, it would be just, you know, absolutely incredible. But I think being able to change the way that we think about money and finances is the ultimate goal for me. Um, and for ostrich and ostrich is the vehicle to do that. I think these conversations is another vehicle. Like I, you know, any, anyone that's listening to the bulls, bears, and bourbon podcast right now is here because they want to one, they're interested in bourbon and they're interested <laughs> in investing, right? You know, they, they want to better themselves. They want to learn, they want to grow. And I think being able to help people is just absolutely the number one thing that I would like to be an outcome, but it's also a personal thing of like, I want to prove to myself that I can do these things and I can help other people. Um, I'm an only child. I'm the only grandchild on both sides of the family. So extra spoiled, but a lot of responsibility in terms of what happens, you know, and being able to take care of people. And so for me, I want to be in a position where I can do that, where I can take care of people. And then I can also help other folks that are like me that may not be interested in money and personal finance, be able to do that. And ostrich is the vehicle to do that if they've got the right skills and they've set themselves up for success. So, and I can't get past the amount of pressure that's on you, William, for being the only <laughs> grandkid on both sides i know yeah right so yeah it's uh, it's a it's a tough life but you get spoiled right you know every that's true the only grandkid it's so, worth it yeah you get all the you get all the benefits of uh toys and attention so <laughs> as a there kid you go. i love that well good stuff i know we're probably getting short on time i know you, you're a busy guy and i certainly appreciate it there's always a couple questions i like to kind of end with the first one is what does wealth mean to you it's a good, a good question in terms of thinking about this for myself. I think not to be overly, I don't know, fluffy, but I, I think wealth is being content with where I am and knowing that I'm in, I'm heading in the right direction. Um, by no means am I wealthy right now. I'm, you know, I'm spending more money than I'm earning right now, which is terrible to say because I'm building this this company, I still have cash flow and things coming in from other investments that I've made. But at the end of the day, it's being able to spend time with the people that I love, support the people that I love, and then being able to have an impact on the world. Um, and I think being able to have an impact in myself that I can be proud of. So for me, wealth is kind of this esoteric term. Um, a lot of it has to do with time, being able to use your time effectively, whatever that looks like. And uh, that's, that's, I guess, how I think about uh, think about wealth. But 
I don't know. I should probably think about that more and maybe have a better definition for you and a follow up. No, I, I, I mean, I think you touched on what's been some of the trends as I've, I've as I asked the question. I asked the question because I asked myself the question and I wasn't sure what I, what the answer was. Um, it's like, why? What am I doing and why? And you know, it's like, oh, why? why when I think about, okay, I can make more money if I do this. Like, why do I get excited about that? Is it just because the number of, you know, my net worth went up or, or what is it, you know? So I, I, I'd spent some time thinking about that and trying to figure out why am I doing what I'm doing? Why, you know, just why that's what I was trying <laughs> to ask myself. And I think that question of what does wealth mean to you is really what I kept coming back to. And it's what, what I like to ask people, because I think it's really important to understand where you're coming from in how you approach your life and the things you're doing and what you're spending your time on. And you touched on a lot of them that, that are pretty consistent and time and family are two of the, the biggest answers that I've had so far. Yeah. I, meaningful life. As you were saying that I was able to think a little bit more, but I think a meaningful life and that to me is the family and being able to allocate the time, but that's wealth. If I'm trying yeah. to summarize it into something more concise. I like it. It's very concise. The second question is if you could go back 10 years and go to a much uh, younger William and, and provide some advice on business or, or money, what would be the number one thing you would, you would say? Take action. Stop thinking. Start taking action, whatever, whatever that is. I spent so much time learning which I think was really valuable for me. I love learning, but I could read, you know, a thousand books and still read another thousand before I took any action. And um, what's interesting is what actually led me to make the jump into entrepreneurship is I had written a business plan three years before I ever started Ostrich. I started talking about it with my co-founder for a while, but the reason why I left my corporate job I was actually at a startup at the time. I'd already left the corporate one, but I was at a startup. And the reason why I left was because the one person that I got to work with on a daily basis who was way smarter than me, who I absolutely loved working with, was moved to someone else. So we were in a sales team together and he ended up on another team. And I was like, well, if I'm not working with Awanke, I'm done. Like, this is it. <laughs> this was the only reason I was here. And like, I believe in the company. There's great people here. It's going to be successful. But like, I know that I need to be doing this other thing. And the only thing that's keeping me here is because I like, I, I can't not work with this guy. And you move him out of my, yeah, I'm gone. That was the straw. Huh? That was the straw. And I was like, and, and I guess, I guess to some sense that probably goes back to, to the fact that I am an only child, only grandchild is that those relationships are really important to me. And sure. that was one of them that was really, really important. But that's what ultimately led me is I knew that I needed to take action. I have goals in terms of where I want to be financially and in life. And if I don't, start taking action now, as you said, that, that compounding effect that we've talked about, like I've got to start because it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a lot of time to get to where I want to be. And if I don't start now, then it's, I'm not going to get there. But that was the, uh, that was the impetus. No, that's so important. And I, I told my wife one day we were just kind of, I think we were at the park walking and just, you know, talking, whatever. I said, I never want to be the person who says, oh, I really want to do that. Or I'm going to do that. And then I don't follow through. It's like, it's like when you meet someone and at the end you say like, let's keep in touch, you know, but it was a fully just like made up empty comment. I never want to be that person. If I say like, I want to go do this, or I want to travel to this country. Or I want to go um, accomplish this goal. 
I want it to mean something and I want to actually follow through with it. And I, I try to do that and it's led me to do some things that sometimes have me scratching my head. Um, but mostly it's led me to do things that have been wildly rewarding, whether personally, educationally, emotionally, just whatever. Um, so I think, I think that's spot on. There's no, there's no shortage of good ideas, right? It's, it, yeah. there's a shortage of action in most, most cases. So yeah, James, I think that was part of it. I was just tired of saying that I was going to do these things and not doing them. Like, you know, at some point you're like, this doesn't align with who I believe that I am. If I can't even keep my commitments to myself, like what, what am I doing? So I think that's, that's spot on is like keeping your word is absolutely a, a motivator for me. Well, that's great. And William, I really appreciate it. I, I think uh, this was just an awesome talk. Uh, I think we hit on a lot of different things from, from technology to, to stupid things we've, we've done in the, and, and challenges we faced and things like that. So uh, I wish you the absolute best. I have no doubt that, that you all will be successful with Ostrich and, and whatever else you do. But I think you're certainly on the right track. And I really, uh, really like what you're doing. And I think you're going to help a lot of people. Well, I appreciate it, James, and I appreciate you having this platform. It's it's a lot of fun. Uh, I've been on a, a handful of podcasts, and this was definitely one of the one of the top in terms of fun. And the bourbon definitely uh, definitely adds a nice touch to the conversation. So, <laughs> any 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 uh, parting words on the on the whiskey? Any final notes? Did you enjoy it? Oh, absolutely enjoyed it. I think yeah. If you're looking for a high proof rye, then this is definitely one to uh, to get. So I uh, I recommend it. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again and take care. And I mean this truly. Let's keep in touch. Absolutely. All right. Cheers. All right. Thanks, James. It's always fun talking with fellow entrepreneurs and people in the finance space. And that conversation with William was, was definitely no different. I really like what he's doing with Ostrich. And if you're looking for a simple way to build some better money habits, check it out. It's a really cool app, very user-friendly and intuitive. And I think it can help people make a difference with their finances. We've got more great guests coming up soon, including someone who's going to talk about software as a service or SaaS. There's going to be a lot for me to learn on that episode. And until next time, cheers. Cheers.